I'm delighted to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. John Hibbing. Professor Hibbing is the Foundation Regents University Professor of Political Science, a graduate of Dana College in Nebraska and the University of Iowa. Professor Hibbing joined the political science faculty at UNL in 1981. His current research employs economic games, evolutionary theory, and behavioral genetics to identify the deeper biological causes of social and especially political behavior. He has served as the president of the American Political Science Association's Legislative Studies Section, received six National Science Foundation grants, and is the co-author, most recently, of Stealth Democracy. He has been a NATO Fellow in Science as well as a Senior Fulbright Fellow. Professor Hibbing's to topic is, There is Such a Thing as Too Much Democracy. Welcome, Professor Hibbing. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. My wife looked at me just before I came down here and said, are you ready? And I said, well, except I don't really have a beginning or an ending for my talk. I think I'm ready in, in between. Uh, and that's still the case, except uh, also on the way down, we were listening to the radio and they were replaying David Gergen's uh, lecture. And I decided that a good way to start would be to make a pitch for the honoraria for all of the speakers in the series being equal. I think in, in true Nebraska fashion, this is the only way to do it. So uh, I'm holding out for that. And I'm going to talk to Patrice when he gets back. And I'm, I'm sure he'll come through. All right, we're rolling. This is a good idea to have a speaker series that celebrates democracy. I'm happy to be a part of it. My talk is going to be a little bit different than some of the others, though. Um, and I'm going to challenge some of the basic tenets of democracy, especially direct democracy. And in this respect, uh, you might think of me as the skunk at the picnic, since uh, most of our other speakers will be pointing out the good aspects of democracy. I think it's only fair that we think about some of the, uh, some of the less good ones. And I do this not because I just think it's fun, but I think it, it pays homage to a key component of our lives, which is democracy, something that I think I value probably as much as you. But um, just as is the case with patriotism or being an American, I think we, we don't do service to those concepts by just automatically thinking they're good. I think we need to question them and see what it is that we like about these things and make sure that um, the, the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. Also, there's democracy and there's democracy. And when I say that I'm going to be critical of some facets of democracy, it's really only direct democracy that I have a problem with. I am a strong supporter of representative democracy, down to my bones. I would not want to live under any kind of government other than that. Uh, however, there's a lot of pressure these days, always, but especially these days, to get the people more involved. And it almost seems heretical to suggest that that might not be the best idea every time. Uh, but that's exactly what I'm going to suggest tonight. I'm going to point out some of the disadvantages, some of the problems with getting people more involved in government. This is a especially peculiar time to make this case, since the popularity of our main representative institution in the country, the United States Congress, is now in single digits. It's basically the lowest ever since they've been recording congressional popularity. Uh, recent events have, I think, added to concern about whether or not Congress uh, is doing what it's supposed to do. So I, I think I should get some points here for taking a brave position that representative democracy is the way to go 
and that getting the people more involved may not be the way to go. Political theorists have been working over these issues for a long time, <clears throat> and to be fair, I need to spend the first few minutes of my presentation talking about what would be the advantages of democracy. Why do we have it? We, we I think, sometimes are too quick to just assume this is the way we need to go, and I think we need to ponder what exactly are the benefits from democracy. Um, a lot, have, a lot of ink has been spilt on this, but I think most of these words come down to three basic justifications for democracy. That it leads to better decisions, it leads to better people, and it leads to better government. By better government, I mean at least a more legitimate government, a government in which the people have more confidence and more trust. So let's talk about each of these just a little bit. Why should democracy lead to better decisions? Well, the uh, common explanation given by political scientists, and you know, as academics, we need to make things a little more complicated than we need to. Condorcet's jury theorem, which I think could also be said as two heads are better than one. Um, the idea is that if I have some private information, and you have some private information, maybe we're both on a jury, we're trying to decide what's going on, we've gleaned different things from the uh, evidence. When we discuss this, when we deliberate, we share this information, and therefore we're going to come to a better decision than we would have come to if we had made that decision on our own. That's Condorcet's jury theorem. Uh, that's echoed in the writings of some famous political philosophers and theorists. John Rawls, the philosopher, said, discussion enlarges arguments and will therefore improve matters. Ben Page, a political scientist, said, sound political judgment requires exchanging knowledge with others. Again, just driving home the point of Condorcet's jury theorem. <laughs> Benjamin Barber, who actually was on campus a few years ago and gave a talk over in Leeds, uh, said, deliberation leads, to, leads people to think of we, not me. Now this is a nice transition because both, I mean, Barber means both that this will be a better decision because I've considered your interests as well as mine, but also that that will have uh, some effect on me, that it will make me a better person. So that leads to the next topic. Why do we have better people? Well, I've given you a hint about that. Rousseau, uh, never one for understatement, says that association with a civil society can change a person from a limited and stupid animal into an intelligent being. So by, by interacting with others in the civil society, by deliberating, oops, we can uh, uh, be transformed into an intelligent being. Uh, the theorist Wolf says, direct democracy would produce an immediate and invigorating rise in interest. Politics would be on the lips of every person day after day, and demand would be created for more news. Now, I know this part of the talk was supposed to be giving you the evidence for democracy, but I, I can't quite weaken, or I, I, I can't quite uh, avoid saying that I think this is completely wrong. If we had direct democracy, if people were make, needing to make decisions all the time, uh, politics may be on their lips, but they would not be uh, pleasant words that were coming from those lips. Why better government? What is it that, about getting the people involved that would add to legitimacy? Again, the political theorist Benabib said, the people accept the will of a process that has been fairly carried out, even if there are grave doubts about the outcome. So we may not like what happened, what decision was rendered by the government or by a decision maker, but if it was done in an acceptable process, we'll buy into it. Similar thoughts from Iris Marion Young. The legitimacy of a democratic decision depends on the degree to which those affected have been included in the process. And this goes beyond just the words of theorists and philosophers. The psychologist Tom Tyler uh, has done some empirical work on procedural justice, where he would look at people who had been convicted of a crime. So they'd been found guilty, especially in uh, traffic and small claims court in Chicago, uh, was where his original research was done. And he would ask them how they felt about the decision. Did they think that, uh, that the uh, court was legitimate? And 
if they thought the process was fair and that they'd had a say in the process, they tended to say, yes, I, I accept the verdict, even though they were guilty. So the, the, the verdict stayed the same, but perceptions of the process seemed to affect substantially how much, they, how much legitimacy they placed in the system. Well, okay, uh, if this is true then, that democracy and, and getting the people involved in decisions leads to better decisions, better people, a kind of self-edification component to democracy, and also to a more legitimate government, what are the ways we could bring this about? Uh, there are several. It's, it's amazing how creative people have been in coming up with ways of, of involving the people in government. Some of these are obvious. New England Town Meetings, uh, a book by uh, Frank Bryan came out just a couple years ago in which he is a, an, an unabashed cheerleader for uh, the New England Town Meetings. Ballot initiatives and referenda is something very relevant to Nebraska right now. We, of course, have one of the uh, 25 or 26 states that permits uh, ballot propositions. This is a form of direct democracy. Recall elections would be another way to get the people more involved. You don't simply elect individuals for a set term. Um, they may be there for a set term, but they may also be removed earlier by virtue of a recall. People's courts, policy fora, there are, there are lots of phrases for getting the people together to make either policy recommendations to a legislative assembly or to uh, enact policies on their own, to actually have these, these people's courts be the ones that made determinations about what the policy should be. James Fishkin has advocated for deliberative opinion polls where people are brought together, given lots of information, and then asked what should be done. He's broadened this out to the notion of a deliberation day, which he says should replace President's Day. And it would be a day in which everybody got together and deliberated uh, either a single issue or uh, a variety of issues that then um, would, would lead to, would influence public policy decision makers. Of course, with Technology today, we can have electronic democracy. We have coaxial cables, which allow us not just to receive information in our homes, but also to transmit information from our homes to decision makers. This means that these ballot initiatives and referenda could take place not just when there is a ballot situation, but whenever. We could just sit in our homes and the issue would come before us, so we'd cast a vote, and that could be the decision that was uh, put into practice by the uh, executive branch. So we could short circuit this Congress, which we apparently think so little of. And finally, there's been a lot of talk about input from volunteer organizations, the kind of Robert Putnam vision that we, uh, we have lots of, of uh, organizations and groups that do lots of good things. Let's use these organizing elements to funnel up the people's will into governmental decisions. Well, I think all of these are really bad ideas, and I'm going to try to convince you that that's the case. To do that, I'm going to present four different types of data. So if nothing else in this talk, you're at least getting a variety. I'm going to use uh, survey data. That will actually come first. Then we'll talk about some focus group uh, data that um, I collected. And I should say that I collected this largely in conjunction with my colleague in the Department of Political Science here, Beth Tysmorse. Um, and I have to say nice things about her because she's now the chair of political science. So she's my boss. Uh, but it was a delight to work with Beth. And uh, virtually everything I'm going to tell you tonight came from work with her. I think actually that she's now been scheduled for the last uh, talk, so I'm glad I went first so that I can take all this stuff and, and I don't know what she's going to say. Actually, I do, and it's going to be good. Uh, anyway, focus group data, survey data, some experimental data, and some physiological data. So uh, you're going to get a little bit of variety there. All right, let's start with this. Um, and some of this isn't, you know, really tightly organized, but I think it all revolves around this notion that there may be some problems with getting the people involved intimately and richly at every step of the way in this decision-making process. One of the main problems I'm going to focus on is that people don't want to be involved. And this is slightly different than what is often put forward by people making the case I'm making. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Edmund Burke, um, who was um, 
renowned for, for believing in representative democracy and wa not wanting the people to be involved. Uh, but Burke didn't have much to say for ordinary people. Uh, he, um, one of his quotes, which I, I probably should have put up on the screen, was, I'm not one of those individuals who believes that the people are never wrong. They have been so frequently and outrageously. Um, and, you know, I, I, think that's, I think that's true. Burke's right about that. We have been wrong. Ordinary people are wrong. Members of Congress are wrong. There is no, uh, no guarantee that ordinary Americans are going to be right all the time. Burke was also fond of quoting uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, where it says something like, uh, how can we expect wisdom from he who pulleth, uh, or uh, yeah, followeth the oxen, and whose talk is of bullocks? As one is raised on a farm, I don't really like that so much. Uh, and I think it is possible that ordinary people can have wisdom. So that's not really the issue. It's not that people are incapable of making good decisions. I'm not an elitist in that sense. I think a bigger p issue is whether or not the people really want to. And I'm questioning the people's motivation to get involved in politics, not their ability. All right, I mentioned some uh, survey data to start off with. This came from a survey that Beth and I did um, about 10 years ago. So the data are a little bit old. Some of these numbers may have changed substantially. Uh, we'd love somebody to give us some money to do this again. And there actually is interest uh, in some quarters uh, to, to repeat these kinds of survey items, which aren't asked nearly often enough uh, in the United States, and also there's been interest in uh, Denmark and in England and in Canada. So we'll see what happens there. In any event, we asked this question. If the American people decided political issues instead of relying on politicians, the country would be a lot better off. Do you agree with that or not? Well, as you can see, more people agreed than disagreed, but we were quite struck with the fact that 47% of Americans disagreed with that statement, that the country would be better off if decisions were made by um, ordinary people. Uh, that, that's a much more even split than I would have anticipated. People just don't have enough time or knowledge about politics to make decisions about important political issues. 62% agreed with that. So when you give them a kind of reason, they said maybe you guys are too busy to participate in politics, they tend to jump on that. People's level of trust in other people is surprisingly low, 56%, when given this forced choice. They had to pick one of these two. Most people can be trust, or can't be trusted, or you can't be too careful. So that should say most people can be trusted. You can't be too careful in dealing with people. And 56.1 uh, said you can't be too careful. We also had a set of seven-point items where we said, how informed are the ordinary people? How informed are politicians? And perhaps not surprisingly, uh, people said that politicians were much more informed about, uh, about things than ordinary people, were more intelligent than ordinary people, and everything else they were about the same, except for one thing. People said that politicians were much more selfish than ordinary Americans. And uh, I won't talk about this a lot tonight, but one thing that I think is really crucial in the American public's vision of elected officials is not their capability, but the fact that they have the wrong motivations, that they are self-interested. We also asked these items. Um, would the country be better off if we left decisions to successful business people? Now, you know, maybe this strikes you differently, but um, it is true that only 31.2% of Americans said yes, we would, uh, we would be better off as a nation if these decisions were left to successful business people. That's just adding together those strongly agree and agree. Uh, so less than a third felt that way, but I'm kind of surprised that you would get almost a third of the American people that would say we'd be better off if decisions were left to successful business people. Now, this is hardly an endorsement of democracy. I mean, there is no accountability here. There is no connection. These people are not elected. In the middle column, the country would be better off if we left decisions to non-elected experts. We get about the same, 31% either agreed or strongly agreed with that. So, you know, who knows what they were thinking of when we posed this item, perhaps bureaucrats. But somehow, we know that these are not situations where the decision maker is tethered to the American people. Now, a lot of these individuals were the same ones in, in column uh, one and column two. 
Uh, but when we did a kind of a crosstab, we found out that about half of our respondents agreed with either one or the other of these very non-democratic forms of decision. The country would be better off with leaving decisions up to business people or non-elected experts. I'm not going to say much about the last column, although I think it is interesting to imagine what those results would look like today, uh, since the uh, running like a business may not look nearly as good as it did uh, 10 days ago. But this has always been a big winner with the American public. 60% uh, of the people said that they agreed that government would be better if it were run like a business, which uh, I think is, is really a, an incorrect view. Well, uh, it's the case that we also did some focus groups. And um, this was useful for us, even though a lot of political scientists and social scientists uh, don't think this is a scientific enough procedure. I think it's helpful, both in a talk like this, where you can get kind of the richness of the comments of ordinary people, uh, but also in a kind of uh, elaboration of these very stark views. You can't get everything out of some closed-ended survey responses. So uh, we were pleased to be able to do not just this national survey, but to do some focus groups. These are situations where you just bring together about 12 or 15 people in a small room. You usually ply them with uh, cookies and soft drinks. And uh, you have a moderator who's very careful about what he or she can say. In this case, it was Beth uh, who did a great job. She had a, a set of things that she would mention just to get things started, because it's very easy to lead people. And of course, if you've done that, you really haven't accomplished anything. So, uh, and, and I'm glad to say that at this stage of the project, we didn't know what our conclusions were going to be. Uh, I didn't know that I'd be standing up in front of a small crowd like this and making the case that the people really don't want to get involved in politics or they don't have much faith in their fellow, uh, fellow Americans. So, you know, I think our hands are clean on this and we didn't lead them one way or the other. Uh, if, if you're not so sure, you can see the transcript of these. They run for several hundred pages, though, but uh, you can contact Beth and she would provide you with, uh, with the full transcript because it's always easy to just selectively use a few quotations and to, to push people toward the direction you want them to go. Uh, I don't think we've done that, and I was really surprised at the extent to which we, we found an American public uh, in these focus groups that was very self-effacing, uh, very self-critical, and not very enthused about getting involved in politics. So, uh, just, and we did two of these in uh, New England, two of them in Southern California, um, and some in Houston, some in Atlanta, some in Minneapolis, and some in Nebraska, because that was handy. A guy named Ron said, we are a very lazy society that wants everything given to them. Maria said, a lot of people, they don't want to be informed. Eric, we have the avenues to contact our representatives, we just choose not to. Robin said, people aren't very bright. Uh, echoing Edwin Burke, I guess. Glenn said, if this isn't going to impact me, I'm not going to get involved in politics. And Chuck said, I think the biggest problem with our government is not the government, it's the people. We really don't care to take an active role and it don't bother us, you know? As long as it doesn't directly affect me, just leave me alone. Hardly sounding like a group of people that really wants to, to get involved. That's chomping at the bit to have more politics thrust in front of them. Kerry said, see, we're all concerned about survival, what we do eight hours a day in order to make, meet bills. Let me do my eight hours and do my thing rather than really get involved. Jill said, I think a huge weakness of our society is that people have the attitude that you owe me. And then this little exchange. Micheline says, when I leave here, meaning when she left the focus group, when I walk out this door, I'm not going to volunteer for anything. I'm not going to get involved. I mean, I know this. I'm not going to pretend I'm some political activist. I'm lazy. I'm not going to do it. I'm too busy obsessing on other things going on in my life. Robin chimed in. That's how most people are. Michelle says, well, I am, so somebody's got to do it, and I don't care how. Well, that's a little strong. I mean, most people do care about, about how the politicians go about their business, but I think the notion that I'm not going to do it and somebody's got to is really not an unusual one at all. Here are a, a couple of quotations from political theorists. Uh, these individuals weren't in our focus groups, but I, I think 
what the focus group participants were saying to us leads to these kinds of conclusions. Democratic theorists and idealists may be intensely interested in government, but it verges on the arrogant, even the self-righteous, to suggest that other people are somehow inadequate or derelict unless they share the same curious passion. Russell Hardin said, it is hard to avoid the suspicion that deliberative democracy is a democracy of elite intellectuals. And it is virtually impossible to avoid the suspicion that deliberation will work, if at all, only in parlor room discourse or in the small salons of academic conferences. Far too much of real politics is about winning and losing. Deliberative democracy clearly has the problem that Oscar Wilde saw in socialism. It would require far too many evenings. So I think, I think these two individuals have captured really the thrust of my view of what's going on with regard to the American people. Um, and I think those of us who are interested in things like a college education are not representative. You know, we're talking about 35% uh, of the population that has a college degree. And that's not to say that somehow people who don't have college degrees can't be interested in politics. A lot of them are. But a lot of them aren't. And the question is, are we doing people a favor by pushing them, by badgering them, by saying they're somehow deficient if they're not interested in the same things that interest us? It may be true. But I would just like to submit to you that we shouldn't automatically assume that it's true. Would it lead to better decisions in people? Well, here's some quotes uh, that come from, uh, the first two at least, come from a book by Jane Mansbridge, who uh, did some uh, excellent participant observation of New England town meetings. And she talked to people. She attended several of the meetings uh, in a town uh, that she didn't name. She called it Selby, just so it wouldn't be identifiable. And then she would talk to individuals before and after the meetings about their views of, of this open democratic process, the New England town meeting. And one of the Selby residents said, some people are eloquent and can make others feel inferior. They can shut them down. I wouldn't say a word at a town meeting unless they got me madder than hell. Another Selby resident said, there's a few people who really are brave enough to get up and say what they think in town meetings. Now myself, I feel inferior in ways to other people. A lot of people feel that way. I mean, the point is, some of us are loquacious. Some of us can uh, get up in front of a room and speak without being very concerned about it, and others are not that way. And I think the real danger with these highly participatory modes of decision-making is that some people don't feel that way. And the people who don't are not an even representation across the population. There's one theory put forward by uh, both political scientists and linguists, uh, mentioned in the bottom of the screen, uh, that females may be especially disadvantaged by this process. Susan Hansen says, the content and style of political discourse is alienating to many women. Her contention, which I'm neither denying or endorsing, is that uh, men and women have slightly different conversational styles. Uh, and if that's the case, then there may be some situations that women aren't very comfortable. And I can tell you this, in those focus groups that we conducted, Beth and I kept track of the words that were said uh, and a variety of other things, because we're planning to use that in another project. And in seven of the eight focus groups that we did, there was one individual who spoke, well, in all eight, one individual spoke by far the most, and in seven of them, they were males. Um, and the eighth was kind of a special case for reasons I don't need to get into. Uh, Jane Mansbridge uh, herself said, face-to-face -face contact among citizens encourages suppression of conflict, thereby accentuating rather than redressing the disadvantage of those uh, with least power in society. And Lynn Sanders, a political scientist, said, ordinary citizens would not recommend solving political problems by means of deliberation since some citizens are better than others at articulating their arguments in rational, reasonable terms. The real danger with direct democracy and deliberation is that if you're not good at it, you've got no backup. And this is why I think representation is a great equalizer in some respects. It doesn't, doesn't, does not to say that it equalizes everything, but I do think it, uh, it can give representation to people who might not otherwise have it simply because of their personal styles. Shifting a little bit from, from um, New England town meetings to initiatives and referenda, 
I'll be much briefer here, but there's a, a piece of research which I inflicted upon some of the uh, students who are here tonight uh, that I think is just really valuable. Uh, Barbara Gamble did some research in which she looked at, especially initiatives that were passed in a kind of five or six year period several years ago, and she noted that these initiatives, and remember these are things unlike referenda where the legislature has passed something and then it is recommended or referred to the people, an initiative comes from the people themselves. Uh, so it's substituting for what a legislature might do. So she looked at these things, and she noted that for the most part they fail. Uh, just less than 30% of initiatives failed in the, the time period that she was looking at. And that's still mostly true today. I don't know the exact numbers, but these things generally go down to defeat. What she noted, however, was that when these initiatives dealt with restricting the rights of a minority population, uh, it might be African Americans, that of course was a chosen group a few decades ago, there would be restrictive housing covenants that would be placed on the ballot, uh, linguistic restrictions, uh, English only kinds of laws, uh, they were big for a while, uh, sexual preference, uh, minorities have been the target for many of these um, ballot initiatives in recent years. And uh, Gamble realized that over two-thirds of these passed when they dealt with restricting the rights of a minority group population. You know, if, if James Madison were still with us, he'd say, that's exactly what I was saying uh, when I wrote the Constitution. You know, his big fear was that if we had too much direct democracy, too small a group, we wouldn't have enough cross-cutting cleavage kinds of things, minorities would be exposed. And if we had a, a large heterogeneous population, and if we didn't have direct democracy, we had good representatives, then we would be able to avoid the very situation that Gamble documents is present all too often in the United States today. Do we like decisions more, than, more when we have a voice? All right, here I need to get into our experimental results. This will take a little bit of background, but I hope it's going to be uh, worth it. Uh, Beth and I did an experiment that we thought was kind of neat, and this plays off of these uh, divide the dollar games, which are kind of popular these days, especially among economists. And uh, the way this works is we, we bring in two people. I'll, I'll uh, pick on Linda, since uh, she was nice enough to introduce me uh, this evening. So Linda and I are, are brought in to play this game. Uh, Linda's given $20, and she gets to divide it with me however she wants. And to cut to the chase here, the, the trick is that Linda is actually part of the experiment. She's a confederate. So we've told her what to do. And she's always going to keep $17 and give me just three, give the other person. And, and remember, I'm the one who really is the stooge here. I'm the subject who's brought, been brought in and doesn't know anything about what's going on. All right, so the, the distribution of the money is the same for everybody in the experiment. What changes is whether or not I, as the, the stooge, got a chance to talk to Linda before she made her decision to divide that money. So we randomly selected individuals. Half the time they got a chance to talk to Linda. Half the time Linda simply made the decision. And then as we found out, every time it was going to be a 17 to 3 allocation. Not a very fair allocation. We should divide this money equally, right? That's what most people expect. Well, uh, it was interesting to hear what the people would say as far as, as their plea to Linda. You know, some of them would say things like, um, well, Linda, you know, times are tough at the Hibbing household, and my wife talked me into building this addition to our house, and you know, I, I could use the money. Mostly they'd simply say, you know, uh, we both came down here today for this experiment, and, you know, if I were in your position, I'd divide it equally. So she'd listen to that and then go away and make this decision. Well, in a way, it's not surprising that the people who had the chance to express themselves to Linda were actually more frustrated with the decision. So we asked them afterwards, were you satisfied with the allocation? Do you think the divider was fair? You can see that in the voice situation, that actually went down. We also did another thing where we, got, we gave me a chance to either comply or not comply with that decision. I could reject it, in which case neither one of us would get anything. Well, that was kind of a stupid thing to do in a way because that would cost me $3. That's what she'd given me. 
but it would keep her from getting 17. And boy, that feels kind of good to zero her out. So, and it turned out that people are a lot more likely to do that, what we call non-compliance uh, in this case, uh, that went down. Compliance went down when they had a chance to offer voice. So my point here, uh, you know, some of our colleagues haven't been particularly enamored with this, uh, with this research, but I stand by it. I think it's kind of neat. Uh, of course, these, these uh, laboratory situations are a little bit artificial, but I think the point is valid that if we have a chance to express ourselves, I mean, I laid it out for her. She knew me. We, we had something going. I looked her in the eye. And then what does she do? She keeps 17 bucks and gives me a lousy three. You know, that's harder to take than if we just kind of walked in together, signed the permission form, she'd gone away and, and kept all $17 and given me three. You know, I, so I think voice and this kind of participation, participation kind of way raises the stakes. If she'd made a good decision, I probably would have felt better about it uh, than I would have if I hadn't had the voice. Uh, but when she makes a bad decision, an unfair decision to me, I feel even worse about it than if I hadn't had any voice at all. Uh, that's kind of what we see with this other twist we did on the experiment. There is a way to make voice matter. What we did here is, since we could tell Linda what to do, we said, make your initial decision 19 for you and just one for me. And it was only after that that we had the person in some, in, in half the cases, give a, a little speech to Linda. In the other half, still no voice at all. And then we'd have Linda come back a second time and give me three and keep 17. Still a lousy allocation, but guess what? This time I think my, uh, my uh, exhortation to you talked you up from $1 to three for me. So we still got a bad deal, but that voice situation, when we had a sense that voice mattered, we actually were more likely to say we were satisfied with the allocation, even though it was just three bucks, and we thought that Linda was fair, and we we're a little bit more likely to comply, that is to accept that, uh, that division. So there are a lot of things going on there. Uh, over 80% of the American people want there to be more referendum initiatives. You know, this is true in our survey. It's been true in every survey I've seen since. Sometimes it's as high as 85%. People love these things in the United States. They want more initiatives and referenda. It's surprising to me that still only about half the states have them. You'd think there would be stronger pressure to have a national initiative and national referenda. As you know, I'm not advocating that. I think that would be a bad thing. But this, these things are wildly popular, not just in Nebraska where we value our populist roots, but all across the country. My pitch to you, though, is that we should be careful here. It's not always the case that people know what's going to make them happy. There's some interesting research done by Bruno Fry, an economist, and uh, he's Swiss. And of course, in Switzerland, they have a lot of these initiatives and referenda. Another reason not to like them, by the way, not just because I don't like the Swiss, uh, but uh, <laughs> the Swiss were the last ones to let females vote. It wasn't until 1971 that females in Switzerland had the right to vote. Why do you think that was? Because it was decided by initiatives and referenda. It had to be on a ballot proposition, and the males voted against it. If that had been decided by elected officials, it would have been much earlier that females would have had the right to vote. In any event, what Bruno Fry did was to note that a canton in Switzerland uh, is uh, equivalent of our states. So some cantons have many more ballot initiatives than others. And in those, state, or sorry, in those cantons that do have a lot of ballot initiatives, the people are actually more satisfied with government than in the other cantons. So at first blush, you'd say, you know, that's a, a good argument for having a lot of initiatives and referenda. But Fry went on to note that those people who actually voted on the initiatives and referenda were less satisfied with government. So I think this is interesting. You know, we may like kind of having these things there, having the possibility of having an initiative or referendum vote, but the notion that we actually like it when we do it is another story. I'm very fond of research by a psychologist named Bruce Gilbert, who notes that we are just really bad at predicting what will make us happy and what will make us sad. Some of this work has been done with people who are going to have a limb amputated, 
And of course they say, you know, this is, uh, I'm never going to be as happy as I am now. This is going to ruin my life. And it turns out, in most cases, after uh, less than a year, they are about as happy as they were before. The reverse is true for things like uh, winning the lottery. You know, people um, do not become a lot happier because they've won the lottery. In some very visible cases, they become much less happy as a result of doing those things. So major things in life, you know, we tend to say that's going to have some uh, dramatic impact on us. And most people have a kind of happiness set point. And there may be these devi deviations for a while, but they pretty much come back. They're either an upbeat person or they're not. And so when we say, uh, you know, we need this to happen or we're going to be really sad, or we need this to happen or we're going to be really happy, it's generally not true. Barry Schwartz has done some fascinating research, which I think have, has a lot of implication for democracy, but I've never seen it really applied to that, that people are much less satisfied with their choice when they have a choice, with an outcome. So uh, if something is just forced upon me, I'm more satisfied with it than if I had a choice between that thing or something else. He's also found that the more choices people have, the more options they have, the less satisfied they are with what they end up with. A lot of this is buyer's remorse. You know, if you're making a choice, then it's up to you. And you keep thinking, boy, you know, I could have had that other thing. When, if it had just been given to you in the first place without a choice on your part, you don't have that. You can't second guess yourself like that. Schwartz has also done things with not just a number of choices, but with a chance to reconsider your choice. Those people who are given later a chance to reconsider their initial selection are much less satisfied with the outcome, with whatever they have, uh, than if they aren't given that chance to reconsider. You know, so I think we need to view this in the context of democracy. Is it really the case that people are being made happier by having a lot of choices? Is it really the case that a multi-party system is better than a two-party system? I mean, I think we have to be careful here. There are a lot of other things that, that circle around these issues. But the, the simple notion that choice is good, that choice is going to make people happy. And I'm delighted that economists have moved away from a simple fixation on money and are looking at, at broader issues like happiness. But the notion that increased choice makes us happier is not true. Some of you may have heard about the research which appeared in Science a little over a month ago, done in Italy, where there was a major political issue about whether or not an American military base should be closed down. So they talked to the Italian people there, and a decision, or sorry, the opinion was quite split. Many said, yes, we need to get the Americans out. Other people said, no, you know, it's helping the economy. They've been here a long time. They're our friends, allies. Uh, they need to stay. And a third group said, we don't know. We haven't decided yet. And so the researchers really pushed them, said, oh, come on, you have to be leaning one way or the other. A few people said, yeah, well, maybe I am. But they focused on the ones who simply said, no, I am absolutely undecided. I have no idea whether I'm going to vote. And there was a vote coming up in a few weeks um, to close the military base or not. Well, uh, what Galdi and our colleagues did then was to engage in something called implicit association tests. And here's where you don't ask people uh, what their opinion is but you get them to associate things. You see how quickly they can associate, say, America, the word America, with good phrases like success and happy, uh, or with bad phrases, you know, like misery or defeat. Um, and or you could do the same thing with soldier, any issue that was, or any word that was related to this issue. And you're looking at latency, just how long it takes you to make that connection. If you're really quick at associating American with uh, these good terms, and it takes you a little bit longer to associate American with bad, then the idea is maybe you've got an implicit bias one way or the other. Well, according to this implicit test, uh, Galdi and her colleagues were able to make predictions about uh, which way people were leaning. And guess what? Two weeks later, when it came time to vote, and they went back and, and found out how the people voted, they were almost always right about these undecided individuals. So Galdi claims that these people were not really undecided. They simply didn't know they'd made a decision. It was implicit. And I think this happens a lot. We have the idea that we're consciously deciding things when, in fact, the decision has already been made. 
couple of political scientists at Stony Brook, uh, Milt Lodge and Chuck Tabor, have used subliminal results where they'll, they'll flash a picture in front of people so quickly that the visual cortex can't identify it. Uh, sometimes they're not even aware that a picture has been shown. So in one experiment, they flashed a picture of an immigrant, uh, obviously an immigrant in, in a kind of a compromising, unfavorable position. And then they would ask people to give some justifications for their position on immigration, pro and con. And it turned out that people who had seen that picture, and I guess we should put seen in parentheses or in quotation marks because they didn't know they'd seen it. They hadn't seen anything. But they would give more reasons against immigration than if they hadn't seen that picture. So uh, Lodge and Tabor conclude that there are things going on that we're not aware of. And people can be led around uh, when, when they aren't aware of these things at a conscious level. And this leads to some of the results uh, that we have uh, published recently, which I'm going to talk to you about for just a couple of minutes. Uh, and these used physiological tests to see what people were feeling. Um, you know, this is useful because if you ask people their attitudes on race, let's say, they don't give you a straight answer. We know that. People like to be socially acceptable, so they're not going to tell a surveyor that um, they have some uh, racially unpleasant attitudes. So we wanted to use this kind of approach of looking at some physiological responses. We actually have done this with race, but we don't have the results yet. We did that just this summer. What I'm going to talk to you about are, are attitudes toward uh, political views and whether or not they might be connected with physiological uh, predispositions. So we use two measures. One is skin conductance, and those of you who have watched detective movies know about this. Um, if your sympathetic nervous system is activated, then there are some eccrine glands in, in layers of your skin beneath the surface usually that start to secrete some moisture. You're under a little bit of stress or you're uncomfortable. And if that's the case, then electricity will conduct more rapidly. So um, these little sensors that we put on fingers are able to, to uh, transfer electricity, and we just record how quickly that electricity moves across. And if it moves across more quickly, we think that they've been uh, under stress. So we showed them pictures that we thought were threatening. A spider on a face, some maggots in an open wound, uh, and a bloody guy. I went through those quickly just for you, because I know some people find them uh, bothersome. I, I think the bloody individual was uh, somebody who was involved in the Madrid bombings. Uh, well, uh, we also showed them neutral pictures, or non-threatening pictures. A bunny, some fruit, and a happy guy. And what we were looking at was uh, skin conductance increases in these various situations. And of course, we're expecting there wouldn't be much of an increase in those. And it turns out there's not much of an increase. Got this working? OK. Uh, so here are the non-threatening or neutral images. And for, uh, regardless of what group they were in, uh, it actually trended downward just a little bit. That wasn't significant. So there wasn't much movement. But what's interesting over here is for this group of people, there wasn't much change. But look at this group. There is a group of people for whom uh, increases in skin conductance, when they looked at those three threatening images, were noticeable. Who are these people? Well, they're people who had uh, policy preferences that we called supportive of protective ideas. So these are people who wanted lots of defense spending. They wanted to stop immigration. They wanted to be able to have guns. They wanted uh, capital punishment. You, know, you might think of these as conservative attitudes, and some of them are, but we didn't, uh, we didn't deal with economic conservatism and lots of other things. But these were things that we thought might flow if I'm experiencing threats in a more vivid way than you are. Maybe I would be more supportive of things that might help me be protected against those threats, whether they come from an in-group norm violator or from an out-group. Um, and you know, whether that logic is right or not, uh, the results are, are pretty stark. There was a significant skin conductance spike uh, among those supportive of protective policies when they saw the threatening images. The other test we used is something called uh, EMG startle blink response. And for this, you need to put sensors not on the fingers but underneath the eyes. Uh, there's an orbicularis oculi muscle that circles the eye, and it's active when you blink. So these sensors are going to be able to let us record how hard somebody blinks. It's called blink amplitude. 
we had our subjects simply stare at a focus point on a computer screen and um, we had the headphones on them so at unexpected intervals we'd play some really loud static in their ears and we wanted to see how hard they would blink in response to that static and you can't help but blink I've tried I've known it was going to come and I've tried not to blink and you can't do it it's a reflex you know it's a loud sudden noise you're not expecting it and you blink one thing that does happen however is that the first time it happens you blink a lot and then there is a habituation effect psychologists know all about this so you blink a little bit less we did this seven different times but what's interesting here again the, the difference between these two lines is that same difference these are people who are supportive of those highly protective policies that I discussed before they're opposed to things like pacifism these are individuals who have the opposite set of beliefs and you can see that there is a gap every single blank uh, even in spite of this habituation it still stays uh, uh, stays substantial and uh, here's the, the bars are just the overall average for all seven and we see that there is a statistically significant difference people who have certain attitudes uh, who are more supportive of defense spending, let's say, who are more willing to um, support terrorism if it could make our country safer. These are individuals who tend to blink harder when uh, hit with a startling noise. You can also take this down to the genetic level. Of course, this is difficult with humans. We can't do some of the manipulations that, uh, that are possible with, um, with animals. But we do have uh, twins that are kind of a nice natural experiment. Uh, some twins, of course, are, that was a mistake, um, are dizygotic. Uh, they don't look all that much alike. Some twins are monozygotic. They look a lot alike. Uh, and of course, what's going on here is that these twins, monozygotic twins, are 100% the same genetically because they were once the same zygote. Only after several days uh, subsequent to fertilization do they become two different human beings. Dizygotic twins are simply two pregnancies at the same time. They share 50% of the genetic code, the same as any full sibling pair. What is going on here? All right. Um, so uh, I don't want to get hung up on numbers, but what's interesting here is uh, the, the twin studies allow you to, to uh, parse out environmental effects, both in the shared and unshared environment, and heritability. And uh, the environment makes a big influence, about 56%, according to this. But what was surprising to a lot of my political science colleagues is that we found that there was about 44% that was coming on the basis of heritability. So it's not the case that genes are determining anything, but it does seem as though genes are somewhat relevant, at least if you believe twin studies. And a lot of people don't, and that's okay. But there is at least evidence that there may be a substantial component of variance in our political beliefs that come on the basis of, uh, of genetics. One final, at least I think this is the final uh, uh, example of, of how we may be making decisions in ways that we don't anticipate. Uh, Kevin Smith and I did, uh, did this experiment with some help. And this goes back to the divide the dollar game only in this particular case there wasn't anything about voice but what we did was we varied how the decision maker got to be the decision maker so in some cases I was told that Linda became the decision maker because she wanted to be she she said uh, you know I would like to be the decision maker in other cases we said no Linda was that because we just flipped a coin and she won and so she's the decision maker so that's the difference between those who sought power and those who were granted power and I think it's interesting. We had Linda give the same outcome again because she was still a confederate. And whenever I thought she was ambitious uh, and wanted to be in a position of power, we were much less likely to accept that decision. When we were told she just was randomly that way, then over half the time we accepted that decision. When we talked to the people afterwards, they never said that was the reason they turned down Linda's offer of two or three dollars, actually two in this case, three before. Um, they didn't feel that way. They didn't know that was the reason, but that was there because obviously you can tell that because that's the only thing we varied from these two cases. So here again, I think there are, there are 
considerations that we're not aware of. One of the things we're in the process of doing now is to compare uh, people's brain activity when they are asked a political question, when they're asked a non-political question. Just look at number one and number three here. These all deal with a death penalty, but in some cases we say, if someone murdered you, would you want that person to be put to death? And then we also say, do you want the death penalty to be available punishment for murderers? So in one case, it's a very personal uh, one-time situation. Here we're talking about a real political belief. Should we have the death penalty? These are not our brain scans. Um, we're in the process of doing this, but we don't have the results quite yet. So I just pulled down some scans from a guy named Kevin McCabe. But here's what we kind of expect. We see that for some people, whether you're talking about the political issue, you were murdered, uh, or the social issue, the general societal issue, should we have the death penalty, we see a lot of activity in the brain. Here's, this is the limbic area of the brain. There are emotional things going on here, which mean we have to make a tough decision. The same over here, even though it's a societal issue. But these people are into politics. They're probably like most of you. They care about these things. They can get really worked up about the death penalty. Our hypothesis is that there are another group of individuals, and I'm pretty sure they exist. I think I've had some of them in my class through the years, um, who get really worked up about personal kinds of situations, but there's not that much going on in terms of, of really being fired up uh, when there's a societal or political issue. There's no limbic activity here. This is what we anticipate. And if you don't have any limbic activity, you're not going to have to have a real tough decision. These people are fighting a kind of rational versus uh, emotional decision. That's why they need the, the prefrontal cortex getting involved. So this is all hypothetical right now, but I just thought you might be interested that we're hoping to, to see this difference, which I allege exists, between people who care intensely about politics and people who don't by looking at their, uh, their brain activation patterns. So uh, moving toward the uh, summation now, our political opinions are more rationalized than rational. And by that I mean that a lot of times we've made a decision and we're not aware of it, and then we have to come up with a reason for doing this. Steven Pinker calls uh, the part of our brain that's involved with this the baloney generator, and I really think that's a very good phrase. So a lot of what we have is, you know, cooking up reasons for decisions that have already been made. Um, I guess in brackets I got uh, this one reference to a, a study that I really like, um, where they, they bring people to the center of a room, uh, sit them down, and then they attach some electrodes to their motor cortex, which is part of the brain right at the top. And when they get a little uh, electricity to that part of the brain, they stand up. You can't help it. It's involuntary. But what's interesting is, after they do this, have the person sit down, give them a little jolt, they stand up involuntarily, they'll say, why did you do that? And they say, well, you know, I needed to stretch, or, you know, I, I was going to take my shoes off, or I think I'll open a window. And this is nuts. You know, it, all of these things are patently untrue. But these people are firmly convinced that this is why they stood up. And, you know, I would submit to you that this is not the only time we behave in such a fashion. But we know it then because it's, a, it's an experiment and we know that they've been, been led to do this involuntarily. But there are lots of times when we are firmly convinced we've done something for reason A when that is simply not true. We are very bad at understanding our own motivations. So I would say that deliberation is often a contest between post hoc justifications for positions previously adopted for reasons we are completely incapable of comprehending. And if that's the case, then I don't see why we should reify deliberation. The reasons you offer for liking Barack Obama or John McCain are at best badly incomplete and at worst wildly inaccurate. Now that's a bold thing to say and it's not very flattering and I hope you don't think ill of me for saying that. I'm overstating it a little bit, but I think there's some truth to this. Um, you know, there are lots of things going on there that we are simply not aware of. Therefore, participatory democracy is the democracy of elite intellectuals. Ordinary people may despise politicians, but this does not mean they want to make important political decisions themselves. See, I really think when 85% of the American population says we want to have initiatives and referenda, they don't mean that. 
What they mean is we don't like those guys who are making decisions now. We'd like it to be done by somebody else. Because we did some of this in our focus groups. If you push them on this and say, all right, let's take it away from those guys and let's give it to you. How do you feel about that? And then it's very easy to get them to back off. They say, well, I'm not so sure about that. You know, I really don't want to invest a lot of my time in making political decisions. The following groups are particularly harmed by participatory democracy. And these are separate groups, not the same group. Inarticulate, self-conscious, uneducated, female minority. There's evidence for this. I'm not sure it's true. But some people maintain that's the case. A lot of feminist scholars do, for example. The main problem is not that people are politically uninformed, though they sometimes admit that they are, but rather that they are politically unmotivated. Forcing these unmotivated individuals to participate benefits neither the people nor the polity. Now, that, that's the real crux of the matter here. And then this, this may be wrong, but I want you to think about that. Are we really doing the people any good? And are we doing the polity any good by forcing them or somehow cajoling them to participate? There's a guy in Arizona, you know, who's very fond of creating a lottery, in which case, if you vote, then your name gets entered in a lottery and you have a chance of winning a million dollars. You know? So that's going to increase participation. Do we want to? Is that really a good thing? Should we increase participation for the sake of increasing participation? I'm skeptical that we should. Um, contrary to Ayn Rand, some of you may have read Atlas Shrugged, and uh, you know, she believes that you need to uh, do everything you can to let people be empowered, be control of their own lives, make their own decisions. And I think that's really completely backwards. There are many situations in which it is better to have someone else make decisions for us. You know, we certainly believe this with regard to judicial kinds of situations where we have a stake in this. We think we probably won't make good decisions then. Uh, if Linda and I have some kind of dispute, should we really decide that? Maybe we should have a judge do it. Well, a lot of political decisions are involving things that we have a stake in. Maybe not quite that direct, but they do. Is it really best? Is, is Rand correct that we need to have uh, participation in those kinds of things? What should we do about this? Well, we could uh, encourage and make it easier for people to participate in politics, but respect them if they choose not to. I would support that. I, I believe in political participation. I'm a political scientist. I would like everybody to get involved in politics. But that's not my first goal. My first goal is to get them involved in politics because they understand it, uh, because they, they appreciate the political setting, and they know what it's all about. High turnout rates in and of themselves are not indicators of quality democracy. Don't give people the do not give the people the political processes they want because they do not know what they want. Instead of bribing them with frisbees to register, teach them about the nature and challenges of democracy, the diversity of opinions, and the necessity of debate and compromise. You know, this notion that uh, politics is like a, a party or a, a, a rock show, that's just not true. It's very different than that. And I don't think people understand that. You thought that conclusion that we were all done. Well, we almost are. Uh, but uh, this flows pretty naturally, I think, from, from the solution. It's back to the survey data that Beth and I had. We broke a lot of this down by, uh, by educational categories. It's people with less than a high school degree, a high school degree, nothing more, a little bit of college but no degree, college degree, more than a college degree. Well, thankfully, the more education you have, the more knowledge you have about politics, that's good. Knowledge was things like who's the vice president of the United States, who's the prime minister of Great Britain, four or five factual questions like that. That goes up nicely with education, good deal. Interest in politics also goes up nicely with education. Uh, voting goes up nicely with education, although we know that a lot of people are lying about this because this would overstate the actual number of people who have participated in 1996, but we'll let that slide. <laughs> but here's the contrast I wanted to make. We also asked people, is there so much disagreement in the United States that we need to compromise? Well, see, to me, this is at the core of democracy. This is what it's all about. We do disagree with each other substantially about political issues. Therefore, we need to compromise. I don't know how else we're going to come to a solution unless we compromise. And I think the more education you have, the more you should agree with that statement. That doesn't happen at all. This is flat as a pancake. 
Um, and, and so it's, you know, somewhere along the line, I think we're failing. And I think part of it is that we, we stress so much the simple notion of participation rather than what politics is. I mean, politics is messy. It's not fun. You're going to lose a lot. And we need to get people to recognize that and to still put up with it. Here, I'm going to skip that. And here's the last screen, I promise. Uh, but I do want to focus on this, this quote first, and then I'm going to finish up with Ernie. Back to our focus groups. A guy named Ben said, I'll tell you just right off the bat, the thing I don't like, or maybe I just don't understand it, is where it seems like you have someone over here and someone over here, and they're always fighting, although they're supposed to be working for this common good. You know, I, I would say that Ben has a pretty basic misconception about politics. To me, it's about somebody over here and somebody over here. We need choice. Uh, we need to fight over this thing, and then we need to come to a solution. If everybody is the same, uh, then, uh, well, first of all, that's unrealistic, and it's not going to be a very healthy situation. Now look at Ernie. Um, Ernie said, politics was never an interest of mine. And then the last election was the first time I just said, you know, I, I'm always bitching about this and this and this, so I registered and I voted. You know, and I think that of all the changes I wanted, I think only one of them happened. So now I could care less, because right now it's just like everything you wanted to see change still hasn't happened. And I think I'm just like any other people. I let other things take my time. You know, we need to get a hold of people like Ernie and say, look, the fact that you got one issue your way is actually doing pretty, pretty well. Uh, that's quite an accomplishment, because there are lots of different issues out there, lots of different positions. And the thing about politics is not that you're going to win, but it's that you're going to lose a lot, and that you need to keep coming back for more and try harder to win the next time. I'll close with this. Um, there was an incident in the state of Washington several years ago. This is when Boeing was going down the tubes, and the state budget for Washington was, uh, was really dire. The legislature was in its last couple of days, the state legislature, trying to resolve this uh, horrendous crisis because Boeing is the big 800-pound gorilla in the Washington state economy. What to do, how to balance the budget. Well, at this time, an elementary school teacher got the bright idea of having her students write a letter to the Washington state legislature and making a pitch for the Tyrannosaurus Rex to be named the Washington state reptile. It seemed like a nice thing. So the kids did this, letters came in, Speaker of the uh, House of Representatives in Washington State got back to the teacher and said, look, this is great, uh, really cute. Uh, we can't do it now. I've got to balance this budget. There's going to be hell to pay. Well, this got out in the newspapers. It was a big cause celeb. You know, these little kids uh, making a political pitch, trying to get involved in politics for the first time in their lives. And what happens? These adults slap them down uh, without even due consideration. Well, there was enough of an uproar that the legislature had to come back and pass this thing that made <laughs> the Tyrannosaurus Rex the Washington State reptile. So now, you know, uh, there's a serious message here. I, I don't know enough about child psychology to say whether or not this was the time for the kids to learn the lesson that politics is also about losing. But at some point, we need to learn that lesson. And we need to say there are lots of things on the agenda. And sometimes your agenda is not going to be the one that's entertained. And your position is not going to be the one that's supported. And you have to put up with that. So I think as long as we have this kind of saccharine, anodyne message that if you get involved in politics, you can change the world, we're going to lead people to a lot of erroneous conclusions. And this, in my opinion, is leading to the negative attitude toward politics we have today. Thank you.
Well, uh, you know, as you probably gathered, I think the American public is wrong about that. Um, and, and wrong in the sense that we need representative democracy, not wrong in the sense that Congress is doing some pretty stupid things. You know, I, I get frustrated with them as much as the next guy. Maybe more, because I stand up in front of people sometimes and defend representative democracy. So, you know, my head's on the block here, and sometimes they let me down. So I'm frustrated with, with what uh, represent, representatives do frequently. But I do think they're being upheld, they're being held up to unfair standards. You know, I think they're being blamed for, um, for our own disagreements. You know, um, they think that somehow they can magically agree with things. A lot of times Congress is reflecting the diversity of the American public. Whereas we have the notion that they're constructing disagreements out of thin air. And I think that's just wrong. Right now may be a good example. You know, I didn't say much about um, what's happened with the economy in recent days, but you know, members of Congress were receiving, receiving messages from their constituents. I heard figures of 100 to 1 that the constituents are registering preferences uh, opposed to the bailout package. Um, so what do you do? So uh, you know, a surprising number of them acted on that basis. They rejected it, which should be, uh, apparently it's what the American public wants. The polls show the same thing. Um, uh, all the polls I've seen suggest the public is against this. Congress votes it down. And then, you know, there's this big uproar in the media and to some extent among the people. How can they do this? You know, the economy is going to go to hell. Well, you know, which is it? Uh, so, you know, I think we like to look at Congress and say, those guys disagree with each other. They're just arguing when we don't realize that we're doing the same thing. We may not argue as much because a lot of us live in little cocoons where we're around people that agree with us. Um, but you don't get that in Congress. You know, you're exposed. That's the whole nature of the beast, is that you bring together these disparate elements of society in one room. Representatives from, uh, you know, Alaska and Florida and everywhere else, everywhere in between, and they have to work these things out. So I think they're unhappy with Congress because they're unhappy with politics, and they don't like the fact that it's really hanging our dirty laundry out for everybody to see. Our disagreements are there. We can't hide behind them. And that's not fun for anybody to see. In that sense, I don't blame the American public but I do think we need to grow up. There must be some defenders of direct democracy. Come on. Good things to say about it. Yes? That's a good question, Ann. Um, I do. I do. Uh, you know, I think we should think more about that. I, and uh, yeah, that's really what I tried to illustrate, I guess, with a little experiment. You know, that there are situations where voice can have a beneficial impact, but they tend to be those situations where you think that you you did have a say in things, and that's really difficult to do in this large a society. So I suppose my off the top of the head answer would be in smaller locales, in local government, perhaps, that would make more sense. Um, because there it's, it's more likely that your voice can make a difference. How can we do that with a, a population as large as ours and with as many differences? You know, so to have that situation where I feel like I really talked Linda up from one dollar to three, you know, that's probably not going to happen. Um, you have to kind of fool yourself to think, to think that at the national level. But I think at some local levels there are opportunities for that. I will have to say though that you know, town meetings are in a lot of trouble these days. The, the attendance at town meetings is down dramatically. And a lot of the towns are farming out decisions. They're taking like the crucial budget decision and having that be made by city councils or uh, by a mail-in ballot. They don't want to talk about that because things get a little bit dicey. So, you know, maybe we can do it more when there are issues that are more uh, agreeable as opposed to the tough zero-sum issues.
Yes, Jim. Yeah, good, good question. So yeah, a lot of people might have the suspicion that, let's say, females are you know, more likely to have uh, an uh, elevated response to threat, uh, both uh, the auditory threat and the visual threat. It turns out that wasn't true for our group, at least. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting is I'm not sure there's a correlation between how responsive people think they are to those threats you know, and how responsive they actually are, according to the physiological data. We've had several comments, you know, uh, since the article came out where people would say, well, it doesn't fit me because I'm just really cool as a cucumber, you know, after a threat. And yet I'm, uh, you know, I'm conservative. And, you know, my thinking is a lot of people claim that and then we look at the physiological data and they blink pretty darn hard. So, you know, it may be that women are more likely to give the impression that they, uh, uh, you know, they'll be responsive to a threat. Men have to be big and tough or whatever, you know, I, I don't know. But we didn't see any difference there. There is a difference, of course, in political attitudes. Women are much less likely to support um, increased defense spending, to support capital punishment. So that, that's the gender gap that a lot of us know about. So there is a difference in political beliefs, but in terms of physiological response, there wasn't. So I think a key part of our study was actually to control for age and gender and income and education, uh, we had those four demographic variables that we did. And, and then it was still the case that even controlling for that, we saw this relationship between physiological response and political beliefs. Yes, Cheryl, Charlene, sorry. No, that's a fair point. You know, it's one thing to, to point out the problems with a particular mode, uh, but we also need to recognize what, what we're comparing that to. And um, I, I focus tonight on the problems of direct democracy. There certainly are some problems with representative democracy. Um, I'll take the latter as opposed to the former any day, but you, know, you need to think about that. A lot, of, a lot of recent research on the initiatives and referenda, for example, has pointed out that money now has come into the initiatives and referenda. And so I guess the implication is, therefore, we should get rid of them. But I think Charlene's point would be perfectly valid there. Isn't there a little bit of money floating around in representative democracy as well? So uh, you know, pick your poison on that. Um, there are, are problems with each, and we're not going to get a perfect solution. Uh, the question is, which are we more comfortable with, getting the people more involved or leaving some of this up to our elected officials? I didn't say much about recall elections tonight, but I just think, uh, I think they're terrible. I think that the... Um, you know, uh, we have a chance to impeach individuals, and, and that should only be used in extreme cases. Uh, but the notion that just because somebody casts a bad decision, uh, makes a bad decision, casts a bad vote, that you're going to uh, pull them back, uh, that's just not the kind of democracy I want. I think we need to give our elected officials a little bit of space, uh, even as we might be extremely critical of them. Yes?
I think there are a lot of ways that you could improve direct democracy and you know, lessen some of the criticisms that I leveled at it tonight. Uh, I, I doubt I'd ever be completely satisfied with it, but I think that's good to know there are ways of doing it. In fact, it turns out in the direct democracy community, there's a lively debate about just that point. Because some people see facilitators as, by nature, elites, kind of something imposed from the outside. And so if you're a true believer, you know, a real cheerleader for direct democracy, they would not even accept that. Uh, that's that's uh, kind of impure. Um, other people say, kind of along your lines, that that only makes sense. Let's have people who are trained uh, to bring out the best in people. You know, if there's some guy over here who's a blabbermouth, you can work around that and get other people to be brought in. So I think there are ways of lessening some of the uh, kind of pathological tendencies of direct democracy. Yes. Nope, your, your hunch is correct. <clears throat> I, I'm a supporter of the Burkean trustee. Uh, I think we need to be careful about the people we elect. I think once we elect them, we say, do your job. I think if they don't do their job, we should get them out. You know, sometimes we can get them out pretty quickly. A two-year term in the United States House is, is pretty amazing. That comes around very quickly. Uh, so they're on a fairly short leash. And I think that's fine. And you know, if at the end of that two years, we think that they have not been sufficiently attentive to our concerns, then I think we should get rid of them. But the notion that we can go in halfway through and pull them out, I think, is a mistake. And the notion that they should simply be there and serve a capacity as kind of bean counters, try to just uh, get a sense of, of every little opinion that's out there in the district, I think is a mistake. I think some of the people casting a vote uh, the other day on the economic bailout had to make some really tough decisions. So a lot of them went up against the attitudes in the public. And I think that's just as it should be. I still don't know what exactly the right decision was in that case, but I do know uh, that the people um, had some fairly contradictory notions. A lot of that was built just on the notion of kind of a psychological revenge, that we wanted to get those fat cats who were getting the big salaries at the Wall Street firms. And I understand that impulse, but I think at some level, people need to get by that and say, all right, uh, I don't like them getting, getting a free ride, but we need to get the country right as well. And so I think the, I'll take my chance with, chances with elected officials on looking at the larger picture than I will with the American public. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I didn't mean to degrade all participation in politics. Uh, it's more. Right, okay, the, the, the direct participation, I just distinguished between that. I would love it for people to be more involved in electoral campaigns. Um, and you know, I'd even go with you partway, Lindsay, on the initiatives and referenda, especially referenda. I, I'm not too keen on initiatives. Referenda, you know, the, the legislature has had some say in this and the people get a crack at it as well. Um, you know, I think there are ways, uh, back to Amanda's point, I think, I think there are ways of doing that better. Um, and if we could protect ourselves from some of the some of the hard edges of the initiative process and referendum process, and uh, I could see that. But uh, I'm a big supporter of people getting involved, but usually through the representative democracy channels as opposed to uh, town meetings 
And uh, you've still got some work to do on me with regard to initiatives and referenda. I think we have time for about one more question. Yes. Whoa, what a last question. <clears throat> All right, the media. Um, I guess like elected assemblies, uh, and maybe Charlene will like this, I don't know. I, I think the media probably gets too much blame um, in that it's a chance for us to, to kind of project some of our problems onto somebody else. Uh, I do think the media plays up the uh, kind of uh, political angle of every decision a little bit too much. I'd, I'd like to see you know, a reflection that sometimes these people actually make decisions on the merits. They do what they think is best. Uh, but I think the presentation is almost always the horse race thing. They've done this for this political motivation or that. That's, you know, true far too often, but it's not always true. And so that would be my sole criticism of the media. I know other people are much, much more critical of it, but I think a lot of it comes back to us. You know, uh, what we want to hear. Um, you know, I, I saw this list of the top sellers for Time Magazine of all time, the covers that were the, the big winners. And it was Princess Di's death, the anniversary of Princess Di's death, some commemorative issue of Princess Di's death, and a bunch of other you know, uh, disasters and uh, movie star kinds of things. And the worst sellers were like uh, you know, the uh, coup against uh, Yeltsin and, and uh, Russia and, and things like that, international affairs. So um, you know, I think the media, at some level, gives us what we want, and what we want is not all that nice in many respects. It's not what we should be getting. Um, yeah, the, your second issue. You know, I, I can't really speak to the developing world. Um, you know, you've had a lot more experience with that than I have, and I think that would be, uh, I would be out of place doing that. But I will say, you know, it's easy to kind of misconstrue some of what I said as implying that the people shouldn't be involved in maybe larger social movements. And people think a little about the civil rights movement in the United States, for example. And you know, that to me is not really governing, it's crucial. But it's, what I was talking about was kind of day-to-day -day decisions that need to be made by government. Um, and by the way, I think it's instructive that, of course, the big first steps that were made in the United States on the road to civil rights did not come from the people, uh, did not even come from our representative assemblies. It came from the court about as insulated an institution as is possible. So we had Brown v. Board in 1953, and that's where things got started. And I don't think that's at all a coincidence that this had to be done by people who are not daily influenced by public pressures. 
10 years later, Congress came around with the uh, Civil Rights Act, but even then, the public support, if you look at the polls, wildly opposed to the Civil Rights Act across the country, especially in the South, but not just in the South. So that's the kind of distance I'm talking about. But in terms, uh, obviously the people were essential in that whole movement. Um, and, and, and I would just distinguish between what is necessary to have that kind of broad scale social movement and what's necessary for day-to-day -day decisions to be made by government.